Hello, dear listeners. I wanted to issue a little bit of a public service announcement because this episode gets into some darker territory than most episodes do and goes beyond horror into explorations of sexual trauma. As such, I wanted to issue this trigger warning. Listener discretion is advised. Attention, listeners. Do you ever find yourself struggling to decide what to watch on a Saturday night when you're in the mood for horror? Or perhaps you're trying to round out your own horror film education. In either case, I'm sure you'll be able to make some great discoveries in my 10x10 Horror Watch List, featuring a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors. We did a deep dive of the favorite horror movies from directors including Guillermo del Toro, Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino, James Gunn, Rob Zombie, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more. Here you'll find a collection of each director's favorite horror movies, along with quotes about what they appreciated about the films, all in an easy-to-reference PDF that you can download absolutely free. Featuring a mix of well-worn classics and deep cuts, hopefully you'll discover some overlooked gems and look at old classics through new lenses. Download the 10x10 Horror Watch List for free by visiting nicktaylor.com slash horror guide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horror guide. Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Ben Young is an Australian writer and director whose feature debut, Hounds of Love, completely blew me away. Hounds is an extremely gut-wrenching depiction of a criminal couple who engage in serial rape and murder. I'm usually not the biggest fan of this kind of horror, but this movie is not even remotely nihilistic. In fact, it's just the opposite. Despite the brutality of its subject matter, the movie itself is executed in a way that is extremely compassionate, not to mention suspenseful. The ending of this movie had me losing my mind. It's pretty amazing. The whole movie is a masterful exercise in human drama, the true horrors of humanity, and is loaded with very compelling performances. But again, I'm going to offer a strong trigger warning up front. Hounds of Love is a very brutal movie. It deals with rape, it deals with murder, both of which we discuss in this episode. Anyway, without further ado, here is Hounds of Love director Ben Young. Ben Young, great to see you. How's it going? It's going good. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, and like I was telling you before, I'm very late to the party because this movie came out a few years ago. And to dive right into it, Hounds of Love completely and totally floored me. There is so much going on in this movie, but it also has this elegant simplicity that I think allows the brutality of the movie to really sing. Um, and I have a thousand questions about how you did that, but... This thank movie, you for watching it and thank you for the generous words. Oh, so, yeah, it's absolutely my pleasure. This doesn't happen to me often. This movie made me shake by the end. I was actually shaking. <laughs> yeah. Not because I was crying, but it was like I was shaking out of just severe suspense. Um, awesome. And I really want to get into how you did that. That was like Hitchcockian level. But yeah. um, you know, I guess I'd love to start with. So, so Hounds of Love was your first feature, right? 
Yeah, it was my first, but like, there's this great misconception that like people just come out of nowhere and make their first film. Right. I I've been working in the film industry pretty much my whole life. I've really never had a job outside of the film industry. I was 33 when I made that film, but I got cast in my first uh, television role when I was 13 years old. Oh wow! And was lucky enough to kind of act all way all the way through university while I was trying to get my filmmaking career up. And mm -hmm. um, you know, I directed tons of television commercials, tons okay. of music videos, TV. And I wrote another movie um, called Die Back, which got up in, I think, 2007 and then fell over at the very last minute. Okay. Um, and so Hounds of Love, while it was my first movie, it was my 11th feature film script. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Wow, 11th. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's such an important lesson because I think a lot of people think they're going to write their their first movie and they have one screenplay and they have to get that written. But it, you need to have like a whole backlog of things because when you have that opportunity to pitch. Oh, man, you, you do. And there's a whole other thing that, you know, I wish I'd known more, but like you've also got to have the one that you want to do next right. sort of in your, in your back pocket. Because, you know, if you're lucky enough to make a film, a first film that gets into a festival like Venice, which Hounds did. And then you get all of this attention from all these people who wouldn't even respond to your emails two weeks earlier. Um, and they all just want to know what you want to do next. Yeah. And I think that that was sort of a big mistake that I made. I didn't have a clear enough um, idea of what I did want to do next because mm -hmm. I just put all of my energy into this one film because, yeah. like I said, it was my 11th feature script and um so yeah i wasn't gonna write a, a 12th <laughs> until <laughs> you know this one was really done and dusted yeah it makes sense so after you had written this what was the process for getting the movie off of the ground it's a pretty harsh movie in a lot of ways i would imagine it's probably difficult to get something like that made but i could be wrong but what was it I like i don't think it, it would get in this day and age like literally only like four or five years after i made it I don't think that I could get it up now. Really? Um, because, yeah, I just think that they wouldn't let a male tell a story about, um, you know, female trauma. Right. Uh, I mean, they, they might, but it would be very difficult now. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, all the rage in Australia anyway was there needs to be more female protagonists on screen. Okay. It was less so about there needs to be more female directors. And by the way, I think there needs to be both more of both of these yeah, things. Yeah, absolutely. But at the time, the hype was like all, all of this, all, like only like 20% of Australian movies have a, have a female lead. So I thought like, okay, right, this is a thing. I want to make a movie. I have failed with all of my other ones. So let's write something that I can do cheap. Mm -hmm. that is has got strong women at its center because that is kind of leaning into what the what the the industry is screaming for at the moment so so i wrote that um and crazily enough i got it financed four months after i put pen to paper which is crazy wow. because the one i've been trying to make before that it took 10 years before wow. it finally fell apart um but yeah so in western australia where i am so the australian film industry is really different to the american one in the sense that our finance comes from the government. It doesn't come from studios or a private system. Oh, really? So, yeah. All of so it. So I'm in, yeah, most of it. Most yeah, of yeah it. pretty much all of it. Wow. So, yeah, so I'm in Western Australia. Each each state in Australia has their own um, film commission, and they have a budget that they're allowed to allocate for development, for mm -hmm. finance, a, a small amount each year, and right. it's also a national one. And in Western Australia, which is like one of the smallest by population states in the country, largest state by geography, but smallest by population, um, 
they have a grant called West Coast Vision, which every year um, gives $750,000 to a new filmmaker uh-huh. um, to make their first film. And, um, and I was lucky enough to get that um, in about, you know, 2014, I think, mm-hmm. with Hounds of Love. And that obviously isn't enough to make a movie. So we went to Screen Australia, which is the, um, you know, the National Film Commission. And we asked for a little bit more. I think we asked for like 500 mm-hmm. and um, we got that. Um, and then with the producer rebate and some other government tax stuff, which I don't really understand, the budget came up to just under $2 million. And that was pretty much all government money. Wow. And the other good thing about that, yeah, the other great thing about that is the logic behind um, the government making films rather than uh, film, you know, like private entities like studios, is they give the filmmaker all of the control because the objective is to train up um, filmmakers so we can work internationally and, you know, make more money and then they can tax us more. And so that's how they're going to get their money back is by helping me get a career in which I can make more money internationally and then they can tax me more. So that's sort of the idea is they invest in the person rather than the project. Yeah. And, um, the good thing about that is that gave me 100% control over the movie. They don't interfere at all. They had no say in casting. They didn't even, I think they got dailies, but they're uh-huh. not obliged. I'm not obliged to comment on, I mean, to listen to anything that they have to say. So, yeah. I mean, that, that, that film, like the thing I'm most proud about it is of course I changed a lot about it if I've made it now, but like everything on screen, even the bits that I hate, I can, it's my fault. <laughs> right. Right. It's a hundred percent your movie. There was nobody forcing yeah. your hand or anything. hundred yeah. percent. So even the things that I hate about it, like I can't blame anyone else but myself for it. And, right. and that's a really good thing. And it made going to the world premiere really, um, I was so at peace with it because yeah. uh, Emma Booth, who plays Evelyn in the film, she was sat next to me at Venice when it played and she said, Oh man, are you nervous? And I went, well, yeah, but like at the end of the day, it's the movie I wanted to make. So if people hate it, maybe I'm just not supposed to be a filmmaker, you know? It's right. like, I, f- I feel like later on in my career as I've worked in television and other things and you have way less control as a director, I'm more nervous because, uh, you know, like uh, what if what if people hate it now and then I'm going to be angry that like I didn't get my way right. earlier, you know? There's resentment. Yeah, but then yeah. if they love it, of course, that would be a different thing. But strangely, I've never made anything since Towns of Love that anyone has liked as much. And um, and that was the only thing that I had 100% control over. So, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So what was the inspiration behind it? From what I understand, it's partially based on a true story. Is that right? Um, yes, yes and no. Um, so, I mean, the, the truth, the, the reality is that there was a serial killer couple in my hometown of Perth who mm-hmm. did... Um, you know, abduct a bunch of young women and do horrible things to them. Mm-hmm. But that actually, while that was probably in the back of my mind, that wasn't what made me sit down to write the film. My mum is a crime writer. She writes crime fiction. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, and she lives on a farm just like an hour out of the city here. And I went up there one day and she just had a pile of these gruesome true crime books on the table. And I said, yo, what's up with this? And she went, I'm just going to throw them away unless you want any, you know, because they were all research books that she she was done with. So I went through and I found a book called Women Who Kill. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, this sounds like interesting. And I read it. And the couple who are from Western Australia, they didn't even feature in this book, but a whole bunch of other women did. And it just like really got me thinking that there had never been an Australian movie that got into the psychology of why a woman will commit serial murder. Yeah. Um, but there is a lot on why men do. And 
and the difference between you know the objective of a male serial murderer and a female serial murder murderer is very very different hmm. and often the woman is um is acting to 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 help a, a, a man or impress Whoa. a man and um so uh yeah so that that became the model on it it was i just kind of borrowed a lot from all of these different cases in this in this one book and strangely mm -hmm. the um the couple from perth weren't even mentioned in that book wow wow mm. yeah that's pretty insane yeah. So yeah that's sort of where it came from does that answer the question yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> and this being your first feature what was shooting it like because given the subject matter it's something that you know there's so much sensitivity behind it um what was the overall yeah what was what was the experience like making it as your first oh, movie man a great question and i love thinking about it um because i've done so much since then but um i mean it was a great experience so emma booth who is the lead um she's the serial killer in it she plays evelyn um i said before i got cast in television mm -hmm. on, on television when i was 13 I was cast alongside Emma Booth when I was there. So we've no, yeah, so we've known each other like for you know more than twenty years, oh, and she's cool. one of my dearest friends and has remained that way. So I I had that safety net there, yeah. knowing that she trusted me, and we had such a great relationship where if we got a little bit shitty with each other, no one was going to take it personally or anything yeah. like that, and Stephen Curry, who plays John in the movie, mm -hmm. he had actually played Emma's dad in a uh, TV series in oh, Western wow. Australia. They had a great relationship, um, but I didn't know him, okay. but I cast him six months before we got into production and we just swapped so many emails. And a lot of people, certainly overseas, I don't know this, but he's probably Australia's best loved comedic actor. Is that right? Comedic actor? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, comedic actor. <laughs> and so he wanted to go all in just to prove that he can do more than, you know, oh, stupid Larrikin comedy. He was and, so um, fucking chilling in that movie. Yeah. I can't believe he has a comedy background. Oh, man, if you look up Stephen Curry and go through some of the other movies that you'll see, like, he's in, you'll go, what? That's the same dude? Yeah, because he's so got a good he, face. He was, he's a stud, but you put that rapey mustache on. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was, it was the mo he was so excited when I said, dude, I want to pedo you up with a mo. And he was like, oh, bring it on. But um, he's actually the world's funniest guy as well. Whoa. And he is the world's nicest human. Like, he's completely unaffected by the success that he's had in his career. And, mm -hmm. like, in, in Australia, you can't walk down the road with him without people like honking in cars and like getting out and yeah. he is just so down to earth and so nice and he recognized how confronting the material was so he'd whip out a ukulele between takes and just play silly little songs and as weird as it might sound to say it was like we were rolling around and and laughing at lunchtime and yeah. not necessarily between takes but he really helped everybody keep the mood light without making fun of the material, if that mm, makes sense. Yeah, um, such a fine line. Yeah, and that was because, you know, you have to respect all of the people who've actually been through this, and, and we did, and so there's yeah. no fun ever poked at that, but he really recognized, all right, the camera's stopped rolling now, we're all having a break, let's, let's like shake off those bad jujus. And he was right. really good at helping me and Emma and Ashley Cummings do that and um so yeah so the experience on set outside of yeah you know it was it was easy i think compared to how it could have been for a lot of other people and um considering that we only had 20 days to shoot it as well yeah. and it got to for five of those 20 days it was 45 degrees celsius plus and that's about 113 degrees fahrenheit Ooh. and yeah so it was fucking hot 
And um, yeah, and so challenging, but because of the wonderful people who were around me, mm -hmm. it was made a lot easier than it could have been. And because I shot it in the town that I grew up in, a town that I've shot, you know, hours and hours of other stuff in, I knew the whole crew, you know, yeah. like I'd shot countless music videos and commercials with the DP and, you know, the production designer is someone I'd known since I was a kid. And um, so that took a lot of pressure off, you know, mm, I didn't yeah. feel that I needed to prove myself to the grips or the gaffers, you know, the gaffer was and still is my best mate, you know, mm, and that's um, good. So yeah, so that, so it was a really good experience in that sense. It did feel as cheesy as it sounds, it really did feel like, a family coming together to go through a horrible trauma. <laughs> <laughs> but together. No, that's uh, that's yeah, great. Exactly. Yeah. About that movie was it confront. It was so confrontational about really horrendous things like rape, like murder. Um, but it didn't shy away at all. It wasn't remotely exploitive and it had a level of empathy to it. That was just, you know, incredible. And I mean, as a, as a director, I mean, I guess my question is twofold. How did you imbue that level of empathy in the script? And then how did you work with your actors and actresses with going to those extremely dark places? Oh man, I love that question. Um, it's so nice to talk about performance. You rarely get the opportunity to. Um, so it, it was interesting. In, in the first draft of the script was definitely told from um, Evelyn's point of view. Okay. And the note that I kept coming from the funding bodies is, Ben, we are not going to finance a movie that makes us empathize with a serial killer who a lot of people are going to think is based on a real one who is in recent history of Australia. Right. So I had to rewrite the script so many times and make it Vicky's story. Mm -hmm. Now, Vicky is the, the victim in it. Yep. Um, and it was only in post-production that we realized it worked making mm. it Evelyn's story again. And so we kind of reshifted the edit back closer to what the original story had been. And I'm, I'm going to give Emma Booth all of the credit there. Like she, she bought an extra layer. She bought so much to the script that wasn't on the page mm -hmm. in regards to that level of empathy and allowing us to see the trauma that her character had gone through and what led her to basically being in the situation she was and being a pawn for a serial murderer. Yeah. Um, it brought so much to that. And that, it really just came from, um, you know, I always do a thing with all actors and some don't want to do it, but most do, I find. I just write, I write a long list of questions for the actor, you know, like what was your character's relationship like with their parents? What's their education? And I try and keep it kind of focused on things which may come up in the film, just a Q&A. And I send it to all of the actors and I say like, you cannot have a wrong answer in mm -hmm. any of this, but like you fill it in and then I'm going to like vibe back and right. just comment on like other things like, yeah, but, or yeah. And, and, you know, like, and let's build the character from that. And so I did that with Emma, Ashley and, and Stephen. And so that really just helped us get such a three dimensional picture of everybody and what made them who they were. And right. so, by the, by the time we got onto set, there was no disagreement as to what the intention of the scene was or how anybody wanted to play it because, uh, you know, as horrible as it sounds, all of these characters were in all of our blood. Yeah. And um, so, yeah. And I sent Stephen a book called Couples Who Kill um, okay. because uh, so that wasn't the one that I'd actually I read that after I'd written the script more as reference to direct and that mm -hmm. referenced a whole bunch of serial killer couples and like clockwork in every single one of those 
um, scenarios. It was about a man who had no power in his own life, was mm-hmm. often like a, little, a, a weed, like a scumbag, the kind right. of dude who can't make eye contact with someone walking down the streets, who ends up finding a woman who's even more broken than him, right. building her up, then pulling the rug from underneath her um, and continuing that cycle to the point of where she believes that she can't live without him and can't identify herself outside of him. Mm. And then he slowly begins introducing them to crime usually with stuff like shoplifting or you know burglary and then slowly builds them up to the point where they're capable of committing homicide right like a frog um, in boiling water yeah 100 percent. that's it and so you know so steve i think got a really good understanding of what it was to be a, a sociopath um through you know those conversations and through the books that we read because the reality is that like these guys, you only have to watch some true crime documentaries. I mean, look at Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted mm-hmm. Bundy, uh, any number of the, the Green River Killer. They're just like normal dudes who are pretty much losers. Yeah. And so they're not, you know, knife-wielding, aggressive maniacs or whatever. They're, right. they're the opposite. They're, they're the quiet guy who yeah. sat in the back of the school, you know. Like, it's never Mickey uh, Knox from Natural Born Killers. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> And um, so that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to try and show a more accurate representation of what these people were like rather than the big, muscular, aggressive mm-hmm. guy, you know? And, um, yeah, and so, yeah, so it was that, just, like, tuning into a lot of uh, true crime about it and reading about the psychology of it. I met with a criminal psychiatrist Ooh. and spoke to him. Uh, yeah, and, cool. uh, and I put Stephen in touch with him. And, um, and we spoke to him about, like, and, and he works in prisons, and so he works with bona fide psychopaths and he gave us a, a lot of insight into how they get what they want and and it's not often through aggression it's through it is at the last moment but it's through manipulation and wow. so you know it's what's behind the smile which is frightening yeah i thought that was the one of the most fascinating things which we haven't seen in other movies is the kind of nuance you know between... what i watched i i stumbled upon a little gem the other night called alone and um i've heard of that no. Neither had I. I just came across it. Oh, wait. Google. That's the girl in the woods, right? Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. That was really good. I loved it yeah. so much. For, same, for that same reason, I thought, wow, this is like a more accurate representation of, uh, of, of my understanding of what a sociopath, a psychopath is, serial mm-hmm. murderer is. And, um, so, yeah, I found that really refreshing because I, I hadn't seen it much either. Yeah. Because as much as I love those movies like Silence of the Lambs that, you know, glamorize yeah. it and all of that. And I do love those movies yeah. and they get forensic oh, me too. But, and they're bombastic. But it's rare that we see something that shows something that feels very real and very human, you know. And that's what I wanted to do you know like because the whole movie why did i decide to sit down and write something so horrible it all came from the fact that i loved those thrillers from the 90s you know like silence of the lambs i think seven was a little bit later but that's another good example and man i was just finding that like horror movies were really like were really violent and often you know but just not scary so much Mm -hmm. as they were disgusting and thrillers just weren't thrilling me. And so I just thought, I just want to write a movie that I would love to stumble upon. And, yeah. <laughs> and that's where Nuns came from. <laughs> yeah. And the performances and the chemistry between actors was, uh, was, was really great. Did you rehearse? Did you hold rehearsals? Oh, I had no time to rehearse. Um, yeah. But I did make myself available to the actors like 24 hours a day. Um, so we did a lot of talking um, mm-hmm. between, uh, you know, like between days. Um, yeah. The only 
the only scene that we rehearsed, and this might be interesting, was the climax, you know, where uh-huh. they all, you know, the, the big climax in the kitchen, which I, I won't give a spoiler for. Um, uh, and I, that, that was not ever on the page. I just had a oh, really, yeah, I had a climax written and it just felt like it was ticking all the boxes. It's like, Oh, this character learns this and this one learns that, and this happens, but it was feeling like it was ticking the boxes without being believable and without being, um, tense enough. Yeah. And so I just knew it was wrong. I knew the intention was right, but what was on the page was wrong. So I called the actors an hour early on the morning that we shot that. And I said, dudes, all the intention is right, but let's just play. Let's just like improvise some stuff around and like play some what if games here. Mm. And and so the end, like Ashley's last little monologue, kill me, kill me, kill me. Yeah. That was never written. That was that, her whole speech. There. That's all improvised. Um, and so, yeah, anyone who watches the film will know the climax that I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, that is all the dialogue and that is certainly improvised. And even, even the way that the action plays out and the, you know, the, the, they, the, the final physical conflict that that was not on the page either. That oh, was really? Worked out that morning, yeah. So you had written yeah. a completely different ending. There was a there. Were, yeah, I had. I mean, it was the intention was all the same. Like right. it all would have got to where it goes to, but okay. it was just a more. It felt like a more manufactured um, ending. So none of the dialogue in that last kind of five minutes was ever on the page, and none of the way that the action plays out was ever on the page either. Okay. So I gave the actors a lot of, you know, like you don't have a lot of time to um, even do takes on an independent film like that, where you only have twenty days to shoot it. But I made sure that me and the actors were on the same page about, okay, this is the intention of the scene. This is how you're going to get it. You know, here's my idea for the blocking, but jump in, you know, if you've got your own thing and often they did and I'd go, yep, that's cool. That's not going to mess with the plan for the camera. So you can do that. Um, And then we do it. And then I'd say, great. I'd always ask them, I'd say, I'm happy. And then I'd say, are you happy? Is there anything else you want to try? Sometimes they'll say yes. Oftentimes they'll say no. And then I'll say, great, well, I've got one. Let's just do something like ridiculous. And I'll give them a really crazy offer mm-hmm. and like, and just, and I'll remind them that like, we've got it, but this is just something, take a risk, you know, let's yeah. just do something really risky here and let's just see what happens. And 90% of the time it does end up on the floor, but 10% of the time you find those little shebang moments like we did with Ashley's final monologue. Yeah. You know? I didn't even know. I didn't, because that was written with no dialogue at all. Uh, on the page, there was none there. And I kept talking to Ash and going like, Ash, I'm not getting it. I'm not getting what I need from you. I'm not getting it. She was like, well, I don't know what more I can do. And I said, fuck it, speak. And she went, what? What do I say? And I said, say whatever you feel like and say whatever comes to you. And let's just, with the intention that you know, I'm yeah. trying to get out of you. You know, this is what you're trying to do to the character and you're not, it's not working without dialogue. So say, make her feel like this with anything that you want to say. Mm-hmm. And she just came out with it. It was like one take done. <laughs> Whoa. That's yeah. incredible, man. Because yeah. um, I feel like creating that space is what it enables just movie magic, things that you didn't write, but the actors yep. know who they are. They know the space that they're in. And then if you just kind of let them rip the things that could just yep. come out of the fucking ether, uh, can make yep. cinema history, you know? It's just some real magic can come out. And um, I feel like that's something a lot of directors don't play around with enough. You know you know what it comes down to? It just comes down to trust. And it's yeah. not always easy to get an actor to trust you. And mm-hmm. you know what? I have failed since then, since Sounds of Love. I've been in other scenarios where I just haven't been able to get an actor to trust me. But yeah. in uh, that situation, I was so lucky that all of the cast just had so much faith in me. 
it may have been because I wrote it as well. And so they mm -hmm. knew, you know, they had faith in my vision. But I think the fact that I had such a long relationship with Emma and she's such a well-respected actor in Australia, that really helped. You know, yeah. all of the other cast saw that she was just willing to go the extra mile for me, they all just completely trusted me. And um, as a result, like we're able to really bring their A game. So, you know, that, that would be one piece of advice that I can't stress enough is just find a way to make your actors just love you and trust you. And yeah. that, that's how you get that extra little like oomph out mm -hmm. of them. So, yeah. yeah. I feel like they need to know that they're in good hands, you know? And well, they are. And the other little thing that I said to all three of those actors at the beginning of the thing was like, I'm going to be asking you guys to do some horrible shit here. And, you know, you all signed up for that. So I assume you're all cool with it. And they all went, yeah, with various looks of nerves over them. <laughs> and I just said, like, I want you to know that I am never going to ask you to do something that you're not comfortable doing. All I ask is that you warn me ahead of time and you tell me why you're not comfortable doing it. So I have the opportunity to explain the X, Y, and Z of mm -hmm. why I feel that needs to happen for the story. And if you and me can figure out another way that hits the X, Y, and Z, you know, mm. the, those beats without doing the thing you're uncomfortable with, I am all for it. Mm. And that happened once. That happened once in the scene, Ashley, like, got a little bit like nervous about doing something. And I said, look, I've got this, let, let's just do it this other way. And then she turned around and she just knowing that mm -hmm. she had that safe blanket and she could back out at any minute, she ended up doing it the way it was in the script, you wow. know, um, because she had, we had that backup plan just in case, you know, she knew that she had a safety net. Wow. That's huge. I feel like that safety net is huge and explaining to your actors. It's so important. Uh, yeah. And a lot of people probably have heard of the concept of safe words, but yes. particularly when you're using, um, uh, improvisation with like scenes involving, you know, sexual assault and violence. Like it's so important to have a safe word and it works, yeah. you know, and, and the safe word got called once um, uh, on this film, but it wasn't because of what the other actor was doing. It was because mm -hmm. one of the handcuffs got too tight and was oh. like cutting off the, you know, um, the, the blood to the wrist or the chains. Sorry. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. That's uh, yeah. That's, I think that's just, that's so enormous for your, for your actors to trust you by telling telling them up front, I will never make you do anything that makes you uncomfortable, but let's talk through it. Let's find a yeah. way around it. I think for just actors knowing that, because you hear all these horror stories about like Stanley Kubrick pushing Shelley Duvall to the edge of the brink of insanity, making The yeah. Shining. And then you watch her performance. And you're like, oh my God, the performance is amazing. Do you have to do this to your actors? And clearly the answer is no, there is another way. There is. I mean, and here's, here's uh, a quote from Stephen Curry. Like, I asked him one day after a particularly heavy scene, and because he is such a nice guy, I did see him a little bit shaken after he had performed in some of these really horrible scenes. And I said, mate, are you okay? And he just like looked up and he smiled and he shook it off and went, yeah, at the end of the day, it's just pretendies. We're yeah. actors. It's not real, you know? <laughs> and, and that's the point. Get good actors and let them fucking act. You shouldn't yeah. have to make them live these experiences for real, you know? Right. So... I've never really understood that. I've never really understood why anyone would need to do like, you know, 90 takes for performance. Like any time I'm doing tons and tons of takes, it's always because there's a technical problem, you know, like I try and minimize 
the pain that I have to put the actors through. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's what a good director does. I'm <laughs> shocked to hear that the ending was partially improvised and that it was mm-hmm. sort of a new, like a, a an ending that was different from what you'd written. Because, like I mentioned up front, the ending, the the level of tension that you achieve in that ending was insane. I was literally shaking no i mean could you talk about building the tension at the end because it was expert level tension i was like a mess watching it oh good well look i think a lot of the credit goes to the actors for that but like i I think that for me tension isn't about what's happening tension is about what could happen and holding off on that happening for as long as possible and Mm -hmm. so that was it. I just just wanted us just to sit there going, oh, my God, like we're at a kettle and it's boiling and it's boiling, and it's boiling. And the longer it's boiling, the, the bigger the explosion is going to be. And so that was sort of um, the approach that I did in, in the whole film. And the other thing is, apart from that final, you know, showdown, which we were talking about, there's almost no blood in the film mm. until, then, you know, and that's mm-hmm. not really a spoiler um, because like the whole film, not a lot really happens and certainly we don't see it because i think another great way of um building uh tension is um uh oh, what is it um is oh yeah leaving it to the audience's imagination you know like there's a few times in the film where we just see people go into a room and we close the door and we just sit on the door and we go oh my god like yeah. what we're actually imagining is far more worse than it uh, far yeah far more worse than anything that we can possibly show without you know yeah to an audience so um yeah so it's about holding off on the on on the physical confrontation it, yeah it's about delaying things i think and leaving yeah. the audience to put two and two together yeah i was gonna bring that up too there are some i think there uh, directors have talked about in the past that there's nothing more terrifying than the audience's imagination so therefore showing less mm-hmm. enables them to come up with way more worse scenarios that you could ever show there are yeah. a few kind of audience imagination prompts that you have in the movie where either the door closes or there's a scene, there's a cleanup scene towards the beginning of the movie and various tools on the ground. You were just left to imagine the most horrendous scenario. And that is so much more effective than trying to do some brutal, explicit scene. And I mean, I just, it was such nuance of filmmaking and I mean, you really don't see a lot of violence, but it is one of the most brutal movies I think I've ever seen. You know, yeah, it's up oh, there. Good. thank you. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just but that's the, what we wanted to do, you yeah. know, like because. And the other reason for not showing the violence is I didn't like. I knew that if I did, it would have become a film about the acts that these people were committing, and I wanted to talk about the people committing the acts yeah. rather than focus on what they were actually doing. And I knew that had I shown everything that they were doing, that's all anybody would have thought about. But by not showing it. Uh, you know, like people were talking about the relationships of the characters and mm-hmm. why they got to why they got to where they did, and that yeah. and that was really what I wanted the focus um, to be on. And I think you know the other thing with tension, certainly when you have no budget, which is kind of what I had, is I tried my best to ground it in reality as as much as I could, um, because that makes it scarier. If we oh, think yeah. that what we're seeing could actually happen then, you know, that, that is certain. And I think that's why alone was so effective for me mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I bought it, you know, like I was like, yep, this, this could really happen. This feels like completely legit to me. And yeah. so, um, yeah, that was something that I wanted to do. 
Yeah, and showcasing characters like that in a way where their psychology is front Ooh. and center, and it's very believable psychology, you know, instead oh, of like, good. again, the sensationalized serial killer in Silence of the Lambs, these are like, holy shit, this could be some asshole living next door to me, you know? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Yep. And in reality, they are the asshole living next door to you. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's the frightening thing about it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're um, clearly a big writer. Do you have any sort of uh, writing daily minimum, like a Stephen King 2,000 words a day sort of thing? I mean, what is your writing process like? I'm, I'm a lot I'm a lot more liberal with it now than I used to be. Um, but when I'm actually like balls deep in something, I try and do five to 10 pages a day, mm-hmm. knowing that I'm going to have to rewrite the shit out of that right? because I'm a big believer. Like a lot of the people who are way smarter than me, who I've met over the years who have failed, I've just noticed they just sit there and they just overthink things. And sometimes you've just, you know, you got to have that giant slab of marble and chip away at it before you can carve Michelangelo, you know? And so I'm, I'm a big believer of getting it onto the page and refining and refining and refining. So, um, yeah. And I do write when I'm, when I'm in writing mode, I write every day something, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter. It, it can be. So at the moment, um, I'm, I'm writing another film and, um, I, I'm, I'm a few drafts in and I got to do another one now. I think I've worked out what's wrong with it, but, um, I don't have a page count or a word count when I'm outlining and planning. And so I'm planning the next draft now and the word count is probably pretty low. It's probably about a thousand words a day, but that mm-hmm. is more, a thousand words of planning a day um, of planned work can be more effective than 20,000 words of, you know, unplanned screenplay. Right. So um, makes sense. Yeah. 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 But, you know, it should be, I, I think that it's, pretty important i'm guilty of it too because writing a screenplay is the fun part planning and sitting there staring at the blank page is the boring part but um i'm a big believer that like if you plan things properly writing the screenplay can be fun because you're just joining the dots and you know where everything is going and um and you just make better your ideas so yeah yeah. so you outline oh yeah rigidly rigidly and i i've kind of i've read i don't even know anymore but i've read anywhere between like you know 15 and 25 screenplay books. I've read all of them. And um, because I just wanted to get to the point where I just took it all in and then just kind of did it all subconsciously. And as a result of all of these books that I've read, I have kind of created, I've taken the best of all of them and come up with my own two page formula that I, that I follow and counts of love. I wrote. Yeah. And that's, that's an eight sequence formula, eight sequence, two pages interesting yeah it can be yeah it can be longer like when i actually write out the treatment i try and have it about eight pages so it's yeah. about a, a a sequence of page but um yeah but i i think there's eight sequences in a in a film or at least i write to eight sequences so okay. two in the first act four in the second and two in the um in the third and then you can have a coda or a denouement at the end of the third plus you can have a teaser at mm-hmm. the at the top want so up to 10 sequences were there any favorite screenwriting books that were particularly useful or effective yes. or yes yeah there was one uh, and i read it so long ago um but i remembered a quote from it and that quote is um uh story is the journey for truth and plot is the path you take to get there hmm. and why, why i think that that is so important is if you remember that that just always brings you back to your thematics and your characters and you know, as a writer, it is so easy to become distracted by the set pieces and all of this kind of business. And you lose sight of 
who you're telling the story about, why you're telling the story, and really what you want to say with the story. But if you remember that you are trying to present a truth about humanity, then if you're always reminded of that, I think it helps. And the book that that came from was called Emotional Structure by mm. R. Dunn. Okay. I thought it was really good. You know, in all of these books, there's a lot of crap and you could really, um, I think you could really sum up the best of all of these books in, in two pages and they're just <laughs> filled with nonsense yeah. so someone can make money out of it. So like, so I don't, I don't recommend following these books too rigidly, but yeah. I think that they, they can sometimes just open you up to start thinking differently you know yeah. because you know you've got to remember that 99 of the people who wrote these books have never made a film <laughs> so, right um, that's the thing about it yeah so you've got to take it with a, a a pinch of salt but there are some things that i get out of most of the books that i read i get something from. Mm -hmm. yeah well something. that's good so yeah well, Ben, real pleasure talking to you. Uh, again, really, really love the movie. It's uh, it's on Hulu as we as we speak right now. So anyone who has not, I highly recommend you check it out. But um, yeah, man, real pleasure meeting you. Thank you again for doing yeah, this. Yeah, pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for having me and asking um, in interesting questions. <laughs> Thanks. It's my pleasure. Any uh, parting words of encouragement or advice for those aspiring filmmakers out there? Yes, fail forwards. You know, like, I think that, like, everything that you do, everything that you make um, is a learning curve and um, learn to love the process, not the result, you know. Mm. And um, so what I mean by that is the result might be the red carpet at Cannes or whatever, but the process is staring at the blank page alone in your mum's basement for for six months and yeah. if you're in it for the result i think you're going to have a pretty miserable career but if you actually find a way to love those moments that you spend alone with your characters you uh you're in for a fun ride that's great cool man thank you again cool. thank you nick that was really fun All right, here as always are some key takeaways from this conversation with Ben Young. Number one, always have multiple answers for what do you want to do next. Ben's first pitch to the Australian Film Commission was not accepted, but luckily for him, he had multiple concepts and was ultimately able to make Hounds of Love even though it wasn't his first choice. Many would-be filmmakers have got that one script or that one idea that kind of exclusive focus is a shot in the foot in terms of your career. When you're fortunate enough to have an at-bat with a powerful producer, they may pass on your first and even second idea and ask you what else you got. If you don't have an answer, you've blown a very big opportunity. Always be developing multiple ideas. Yes, this runs counter to the importance of focus, but... Think of it as tending a garden of projects that you nourish and develop over time. So whenever opportunity strikes, you have multiple strong options. Number two, rehearse remotely and over time. Most indie filmmakers don't have time for rehearsals, but that's no excuse to be pausing cameras to discuss the emotions and motivations of a character. You still need to have all of that worked out ahead of time, ideally with full collaboration with your actors. 
Ben has an elaborate system of questions around characters and scenes that he gives to his actors via Google Docs. They answer and he comments, and together they work out the character details over time instead of through typical rehearsals. This is very powerful because over time, these character nuances are able to really sink into the actor's psyche, while the director has also had the opportunity to fully flesh them out. Number three, build trust. This is a big one. Horror typically deals with very dark subject matter, which can be difficult, even triggering for actors. A movie like Hounds of Love deals with very, very harsh subjects like rape, slavery, and murder. The actors had to go to extremely dark places and in a believable way, but they would not have been able to go there without trusting Ben implicitly. Ben stated to his actors early on that he would never ask them to do anything they were not comfortable doing, but he would explore why they're uncomfortable doing it and find a compromise with the actor that got him what he needed. This is compassionate directing, and it can lead to not only better performances, but an enjoyable and meaningful set experience for your actors. For an example of what not to do, see Stanley Kubrick and Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. And thank you again for listening. Hey guys, one last thing before you head out. If you haven't already, don't forget to check out my 10 by 10 horror watch list. How would you like a list of the 10 favorite horror movies of 10 of your favorite horror directors? Well, I just hooked your ass up. The 10 by 10 horror watch list features a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors, including Ari Aster, James Gunn, Quentin Tarantino, Jordan Peele, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more, all in an easy to reference PDF. You can download this guide for free as my gift to my dear listeners at nicktaylor.com slash horror guide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horror guide. Check it out and let me know what you think. 